Our scripture reading this week is 2 Timothy and Titus. 2 Timothy and Titus. Now, as far as the order goes, Titus was before 2 Timothy. But as I want to do what I did last week, I want to build off of what we were talking about last week on the subject of uh, false teaching, encountering that, what the Bible has to say. I also want to carry a theme through that appears to, that stands out to me very clearly from 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and the book of Titus. So Paul here is writing to Titus. Now I want to go to Titus chapter 1. That's what we're going to do right now. Go to Titus chapter 1 and look at verses 10 through 16. We'll use that for our exposition and look at it in some detail. Two things I want to connect together tonight. And I hope that we see the importance of this and put these things together. The first thing is, is that there is a responsibility in the church to stop liars, to stop deceivers and false teachers. And I was talking about this last week, and we looked at a number of passages from 1 Timothy about the Christian life and how important it is for us to stand opposed to uh, those who speak things that are, that are in error. We're going to see a description here of deceiver, deceivers and idle talkers in Titus chapter 1. Second thing I propose to connect with that is that we're standing against false teachers. And the Bible warns us throughout almost every book in the New Testament warning us there's going to be false teachers. There's going to be wolves in sheep's clothing who will come into the church and teach things that are not true, that teach things that are false. At some point in your life as a Christian, if you've been in the church for 10, 20, 30 years, you've come across someone teaching error, if not multiple people, trying to lead people astray. Uh, I've seen this on a number of times. And the Bible encourages us and teaches us to work toward unity. But how do we counter that? What do we do about this? One thing we do is that we live as devoted Christians. I think, to me, the number one problem among churches today is devotion. And I don't think it's always that way, but uh, I think a lot of people have an excuse right now. They think, if, if I can have any excuse in any time, it's right now in 2020 and 2021, to say, well, you know, I need to be safe. And so they don't live a devoted life to Christ. They're not a devoted follower. But to be a Christian means to be devoted. It means to be a disciple. It means that I'm committed, that I'm going to continue steadfastly. Or like we read about in the church from the very beginning, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, when 3,000 people were baptized, it said they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And you keep reading there, and there's a little bit more detail to that and what was going on there. But you get that picture of devotion in the first church, and it needs to continue today. One thing that stands out here is the word godliness. First Timothy, when you're reading through it, you'll see it uh, in Titus and Second Timothy. Throughout these books, you get an emphasis on godliness. It's the Greek word, or two different Greek words, eusebeo, uh, which came from another Greek word, sebeomai. And sometimes this word is translated as devotion. Its noun form is usually translated as godliness. But as I mentioned before, the word God is not in that word, sebeomai. It's not there. Um, and I remember doing a word study on this, one of the first word studies I ever did when I was studying Greek. And, and these words stood out to me. And I'm convinced that what we're reading about here is the, the meaning of it, the verb form of it, because there is a verb form of godliness. And that is devotion, to be devoted, to be committed, and to, to demonstrate that and to live that life. So 
You may, not disagree, you may not agree with me on that, but I see that one thing that the church needs today is devotion. And we need it to stand contrary to things that are not true. Things that are contrary to the gospel and contrary to the scriptures. All right, so let's read our passage, and we're going to make, draw some observations from it. And we'll build a little bit on it from other parts of Titus. And then I also want to go over to 2 Timothy for a moment too. All right, so Titus chapter 1, verses 10 and following. Paul says this, For there are many insubordinate. There are many who are not humble. Insubordinate to who? Not subjecting to who? We'll get to that in a moment. Both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So you have false teachers, and he says, and especially of those who are Judaizers, who are mixing uh, old Jewish law and compromising the Christian faith. Look at verse 11. Whose mouths must be stopped. You see, Paul doesn't hesitate here. Their mouths must be stopped. Why? What is so bad? What's going on here? Who subvert whole households. They undermine, they subvert, they destroy, they lead away whole families of people. You ever seen that before? I've seen it. I've seen families just say one day, you know what, uh, this congregation, uh, we really want some bigger programs for teenagers, so we're going to give up the truth and go to a congregation that's much bigger, even though we know they're not teaching the full gospel, that they're not teaching what is in the Bible, and they're teaching a lot of error, and they're willing to compromise that. I don't understand that. It makes no sense to me. But they, we see here that there are false teachers subverting whole households. I've seen it. I've seen people be led astray. I've seen individuals come in and teaching these things are in error. Let's keep reading. Teaching things which they ought not. Yes, their mouths need to be stopped because they're teaching things that should not be taught for the sake of dishonest gain. And I, I wouldn't take this as just monetary gain. We're going to see that in a moment. They're doing it for any kind of lust, any kind of desire, anything they covet, power, attention, whatever it might be. That's what's in, in them, their dishonest gain. Look at verse 12. One of, one of them, talking about the Cretans, uh, there is Titus in Crete, prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now you might be saying, wow, that's, that's pretty tough on Cretans there, that Paul's going to quote from this, this one of their own. But what's he doing? I mean, you could go to any culture at any time and, and take an individual and them say, well, you know, all Americans are like this, you know, and all British people are like this. You just take an ethnicity and there's somebody revealing that these, this group of people have a problem with multiple sins. Okay, that's all he's doing here. Look at verse 13. He says, this testimony is true. And you see it. You see there's liars among them. There's evil beasts. There's lazy gluttons. And he says, therefore, rebuke them sharply. So that's the instruction to Titus. But it's not just to him. It's to others as well. You rebuke them sharply. I, I don't think he's meaning you, you be real mean about it right here. We're going to look at other scriptures that talk about handling this with gentleness. Uh, you can rebuke someone without being mean about it. Uh, but it, you can also be sharp. You can say, listen, this is wrong. The mouths must be stopped. We're not going to say anymore. We're not going to teach anymore in this error. We're not going to compromise what the Bible says on worship or on baptism about salvation or about the organization of the church. We're not going to give any of that up. And he says, you need to do this. Why? That they may be sound in the faith. That they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed. Remember last week we read the word myths. Same word here. So Jewish fables or myths or stories, that they not be giving into them. Or the commandments of who turn from the truth. And we've seen that throughout the Bible. People coming up with their own commands. Their own Verse 15 and 16. He says, notice this. To the pure, all things are pure. 
But to the Christians, we see that there are things that are pure, that need to be kept whole, that cannot be compromised. He says, but those who are defiled and unbelieving, defiled and unbelieving, what would make them defiled? Well, sin. Unbelieving? Well, we're going to see more about that. To them, nothing is pure. Even their mind and conscience are defiled. Well, how do we know that? Verse 16, they profess to know God. You ever known somebody like this? They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. I I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be the person that says, I believe in God. And then people look at Him and say, but His works say something else. But His works deny Him. You can deny God. You can live like an atheist while claiming to be a theist, while claiming to be a believer. He says, and this is being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So you see here, the churches there in Crete have a problem. Paul left Titus there with a mission to correct the error there, to fill in what was lacking. And he sets in order some very important things. And what we see right here is that the instruction is the mouse must be stopped and you, Titus, as a minister... And the instruction would also include the context of the elders. The elders have the responsibility to correct false teaching. And that's what we see. If you back up to Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul says to Titus, they left him in Crete for what is lacking, elders, and that you are to appoint them. Who are you going to appoint? You're going to appoint married men of high Christian character who manage their households well. They need to be able to manage their household, their families, And as we saw here, what was happening to households? They were being subverted. They're being taught lies. They're being taken away. So we need men who lead their own household, who will not let their own home be taken away off into error. Those men, it makes sense, would be the great leaders in the congregation. That's the kind of men we want to be elders. That's the one who have that job to stand up, to hold to the truth, and to correct error. And again, why? Titus 1 and verse 9 again We have the instruction for elders and what they are to be doing here. So you get all these qualifications and you get down to verse 9. It says that these men who are to be qualified elders, holding fast to the faithful word that he has taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort, that means to encourage, and convict those who contradict. They're going to stand to the word. They're going to uphold it. They're going to encourage and they're also going to convict When there's error, we're not going to compromise. The church needs that. The church needs such men, such leaders, and we see it here in the book of Titus. I want to notice another thing here. When we see with the false teachers, it says here, leading people away where they're being defiled, where they're denying God by their own works. Denying God by their own works. So Paul begins building on that, and I want to note a few passages about that. Go down to Titus 2 and verse 11 and 14. I got to preach a sermon on this recently more in more de- length and detail. But look right here in Titus 2, 11 and following. He says this. He teaches them and reminds them of what God's grace does. God's grace teaches people to deny ungodliness, the lack of devotion, and to deny worldly lust, and to live what kind of life? A sober life and a righteous life and a devoted life. We need devotion. So this is what I read right here, 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God brings salvation, has appeared to all men, 
teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly, devoted in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. Now, that's what we need. We need people, that's the church, is a group of God's people zealous for good works who've been trained or being taught by God's grace. When you've been saved by God's grace, and I, I keep mentioning this, I'm going to keep doing it, God's grace saves us from sin. Therefore, God's grace teaches us, don't go living in sin. You can't go back from it. That's what you were saved from. Turn away from it. And if you're not doing that, you've got a problem. You're either denying God by the way that you're living. You don't really know who He is. You don't know His Word. Or you don't understand His grace. You don't understand the great things He's done for you. And then Paul goes on here and tells Titus, speak these things. Speak them. Exhort. Encourage. Rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Sounds very similar to what Paul told Timothy as well. Let no one despise you for your youth. So here, Titus is to lead. He is to make sure that this congregation has the leadership, the elders, and to make sure that they are going according to God's grace and His gospel and are not willing to compromise. So, you know, you think about that. God's grace stands in contradiction to the false teaching that is there. To, a false, to avoid false teaching, we have further instruction. Go over to Titus chapter 3. I think you'll find this fascinating. We have other scriptures we read on this matter. How to respond when we hear error. And I would encourage you to do this. Don't argue. Remember, the, the Proverbs teaches us not to argue with a fool. Okay? We don't argue over controversies. And a lot of the arguments, when someone's denying God by their own works, I don't need to get into a discussion about how the church is organized. I need to talk to them. Listen, this is how you behave. This is the gospel. This is our God. This is Creator. We need to go back to the basics. Go back to the foundation and to the core. Another thing is, is when that person knows better and they want to dispute and argue over things that really don't matter, how do you respond to that? Titus chapter 3. 9 through 11. Paul says, But avoid foolish disputes. You know when it's a red herring, when it's a distraction. Uh, anybody who's taught a Bible class before, if you teach children, you can get one child in there who's going to want to distract you and you know, throw some things in there that really aren't relevant. And sometimes you know the children don't know any better and you can redirect them. And sometimes you get that in an adult class. Some adult classes can be uh, very disrupted in that way if you don't know how to handle that. So you've got to have some wisdom and teaching, especially in a higher level class. All right, so verse 9, avoid foolish disputes. Genealogies. Remember we mentioned this last week. People are saying, I'm of this descent, I'm of Jewish descent, I'm of whatever, whatever descent. I have authority, I have power. And they're using that. And then about contentions and strivings about the law. Yeah, they can just say, well, you know, the law said this, and hold it over people's heads. And what does Paul say? For they are unprofitable and useless. Unprofitable and useless. I'm going to share with you another scripture about this in a moment. How we handle these things. All right, look at verse 10. Reject a device of man after the first and second admonition. Okay, so you warn him. He said, you know, we can't, we're not going to teach that. We're not going to teach that error. The mouth has to be stopped. It has to be rebuked sharply. And there's a responsibility and role for the elders, for the leaders of the church, for the minister. And I would say for every Christian as a responsibility to warn them once, to warn them twice. And then what? Verse 11. And it says here, reject him after that. 
after the first and second admonition, you reject a divisive man. Verse 11, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. And so we get a big picture here in responsibility that the Apostle Paul, before, you know, he's looking and he's in his fourth missionary journey. He's coming up to his last imprisonment and his death when you get to 2 Timothy. And what does he want to pass on? What does he want the church to do? He wants the church to stand for the truth. Don't compromise God's grace for sin. Don't change the gospel for anything. Keep the truth. I would propose to unite. I got two more things I want to point out. But number one, I believe this. And correct me if I'm wrong. As I mentioned, was it last week in the sermon on Sunday morning, there are certain things you learn in marriage about what works and what doesn't. And I'll tell you that I believe arguing does not win arguments. Arguing does not win arguments. Um, if, if you ever said, you know, after Sunday night, let's go eat. And your spouse says, we're going to, let's go eat here. And you're like, no, you always want to eat there. Okay. And you might think you won that argument too. We're going to go eat somewhere else. You didn't win that argument. Especially if you've been married, you know, no man knows that he, that if he gets to go eat where he wants to eat, that he's won an argument. That's just foolishness. All right. And we can apply that in many areas. Um, that doesn't. You know, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't hold up. So let's go over to 2 Timothy. We're going to see some more about, about arguments. And we've already going to avoid them. We want to step aside from them. But I'm going to try to demonstrate my case here that I believe that arguing does not win arguments. It's something that uh, you're going to hear out of my mouth some more. My family's heard. My children have heard me say. And when they're arguing, I keep telling them that. Arguments don't win arguments. All right, 2 Timothy 2, 14 and 15. So this is Paul's last epistle. He's about to die. He knows he's going to die. And he's writing to Timothy. Now he, he, know, he thinks he has some time here, so he's telling Timothy to come to him and bring his parchments and clothing and so forth. But look at verses 14 and 15. He says, Remind them of these things, charging them for the Lord not to strive about words to no profit. Oh, why should I argue about words? Why shouldn't we have those kind of discussions and heated discussions in, at church and in Bible class? This is why. It's to the ruin of the hearers. It's the very next line. It ruins the hearers. Now, how many visitors come into a church and want to hear what the argument is and what's going on at that church right now and hear people being contentious? They don't. It didn't help anybody. Does it help the children? Does it help the teenagers? Does it help those who are young in their faith or just baptized and whatever age they are? It doesn't help. It ruins hearers. Verse 15. This is what you got to do. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of the truth. The word of truth. You handle the word of God rightly. And then he goes on in like verse 16, he says, shun profane and idle babblings. You, you stand against that. They lead to more ungodliness, lack of devotion to God, when people get distracted from the truth. All right, I want to share with you a little bit further on that as far as the arguments go down. Go down to verse 23, 2 Timothy 2, 23. Paul says to Timothy, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. Okay, so you might say, Scott, I kind of disagree. There are some arguments that could be won, but the foolish ones, no, we shouldn't be any part in that. So you want to disagree with me on that, then fine. But he says, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that it's strife. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. You've got to be gentle. You're not in quarreling. Able to teach patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, 
if God perhaps will grant them repentance so they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So I think that's a very strong passage there about how we are to approach and to handle error. I get this impression today that many Christians, especially when it comes to their own family, their own household, when someone begins to live in sin, even though they claim to know God, and they might claim to be a Christian, even though they've been faithful and going to church most of their life, that when someone starts to live in a different way, then everybody, at least in my family, everybody just wants to ignore it. Just overlook it. And that goes on in churches, and it goes on in families, where, where we've decided we're not going to say anything. Well, the Bible says here we are to rebuke, sharper than rebuke. We are to correct error with gentleness. These are things that we have a responsibility to do. And if you're a leader and example and the Christian example in your family, this falls on you. This is your responsibility and your duty. And it's definitely the responsibility of those who lead their household well, who become elders, that they do the same thing. That this is very important and we need them to do that. Lastly tonight, I want to bring the beginning back to the end. I think, again, number one problem in the church today is the lack of devotion. It's the lack of godliness, godly living. And the devotion to God's word and to his church. And that's the kind of devotion, again, I see in Acts 2, 42, that we're devoted to what? To the teaching, to the doctrine. They were devoted to the fellowship, to the sharing with, with one another in communion. That were devoted to the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper. That were devoted to prayers. And that were devoted to giving, if you continue to read there. All those things are a part of the Christian life. Followers of Christ are devoted. And this counters false teaching. And that was a problem and something that Paul wanted to address. You keep reading where we just were and go right into 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. And we'll demonstrate again the impact of false teaching and false living teaches. And we'll finish with this. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to their parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, having a form of devotion, but denying its power. And from such people, turn away, avoid. Turn away. Now, first, we want to correct them, but we cannot be in fellowship with them. We cannot be eating with them. And in those who live in such rebellious lives, Paul warns, he says, in the last days, the last days are, we're already there. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. You don't believe me? Read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We've been in the last days. And I love everything. When you read through 2 Timothy, I hope you notice everything that Paul is giving to Timothy, to the church, to stay strong after he's gone. Because you come down to the end and it's the passage that, that uh, Wyatt read for us tonight. So as, as Paul's given instruction here, he says, I want you to live a godly life. Chapter 3 and verse 12, he's telling that to Timothy. 
He says, there's going to be evil men and imposters. They're going to come. They're going to be deceiving and deceived. They're going to become worse. He says, but this is what you do. You continue. You do stay devoted in the things of which you've learned, being assured of them, knowing from whom you've learned them. And from, that, from childhood, you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he says, every scripture, all scripture, is given by inspiration of God. It's breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, that every person of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, there's a lot there when we're looking over Titus, 2 Timothy. The message is quite clear. There's going to be errors, there's going to be false teaching, and we need to be able to stand our ground. We need to know what we, got to, what we should do. And the Bible tells us. There shouldn't be any fog there. We need to stand that ground. Sharply rebuke, be gentle when we must be gentle. Admonish once and twice, and then we've got to avoid those who are causing error. We, none of us, wants to deny God by living in a worldly way. We've got to stay devoted. Tonight, if you've drifted away, you want to devote yourself again to Christ, you can do that. We want to pray with you and encourage you. If you want to put on Christ in baptism, having confessed your faith and having repented of your sins, you can do that. I encourage you to do that. Let's sing together.